1 Samuel 1, uh, 12, 1 through 2, and 12 through 20. Samuel said to all of Israel, I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. Even though the Lord our, your God was your king. Now, here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, well, that's good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Don't be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all of this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're exploring in this series the fact that fear is very old. We can trace it all the way back to the fall of humankind when Adam and Eve first sinned. The first time we read about this word fear is when God came looking for them and they went hiding because they were afraid in that moment. And ever since that moment, that word fear crops up a lot through scripture. And oftentimes, in fact, it's said to be one of the most frequent, if not the most frequent command of God to people, fear not. As though God was seeking to undo what had happened in the garden to his good creation. And so he spent the rest of the story telling us, fear not. Offering to us a better way. Jesus himself said that are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. 
And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I've been taking comfort in that verse lately and trying to offer comfort through that sentiment as well. That even when it comes to our time to die, we know that we are in the hands of a God who cares. And not even a sparrow, not even the smallest of birds, perishes apart from his loving care and attention. What a beautiful thing to know that even when it's your time or your loved one's time, that they do not pass apart from the loving care and attention of a God who knows even how many hairs are on their head. And so throughout Scripture, we're reminded to fear not. And there's a lot of things we fear in life. And we've already looked at Abraham as an example of how we often fear what's coming down the line in our future. And, and then we looked at Joshua and the fear we have for the battles that we face in life that come in different forms. And of course, one of the battles that we all face as Christians in this life is the battle against sin. And today I want to specifically talk about fear of our sin, or specifically fear of our past sin, that often cripples us as Christians. Maybe this won't be an issue for you, but I think for most of us, at some time in our Christian faith, if not often, we are more crippled by this than we realize. In fact, American Christianity in particular has often been influenced by fear as a motivator and a tool in our Christian faith. And this dates all the way back to our earliest days in the 1700s. You may have heard in history class in a bygone era the, the term the Great Awakening. We had a first Great Awakening and a second Great Awakening. And in that first Great Awakening, one of the great preachers was Jonathan Edwards. And his famous sermon that appears in all the history books is this one. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'm still working on that one. A version of that for y'all someday. <clears throat> I'll give you advance warning if you want to skip that day. They, uh, this set the tone for American preaching for many years. Many of you grew up with hellfire and brimstone preaching probably. Some of you long for it. We need to get back to the days of hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> and as a result, many people in our culture have uh, kind of a warped understanding of God and a warped understanding of uh, what should motivate a Christian towards good Christian living, towards following Jesus. Uh, great awakening is a good term for it because fear and the understanding of reality can serve as a great awakening. It can awaken us to a reality. But it cannot be the thing that serves to move us forward in our Christian faith. Fear is a horrible motivator. And, and not a very good master. And we're going to look into that a little bit today. And we're going to see it plainly. Even back as far as the Old Testament long before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. To remind us how much the Father cares for us. Even more, of course, than sparrows, whom he also cares for. Even before that, long before that, in a season of life which we often associate with the wrath of God in the Old Testament, we find even there this teaching that fear should not be 
what drives us to follow God's commands, to do as he teaches us to do. Now the book that we read from is called 1 Samuel, and it's named after a giant in Israel's history. This chosen people of God raised up through Abraham uh, and eventually moved to Egypt where they became slaves. And Moses was raised up by God to deliver them out of slavery and into a new life and a new promised land. And last week we looked at Joshua who led them into that promised land and established them there. And you may not realize that when they established there in the promised land, unlike all the other peoples in the world, they had no king. They had no king. They had no leader that could claim the king's rights to tax them or to raise up an army or to command their sons to serve him in any capacity. They had no king. They had God. And God, as needed, raised up what they called judges. People who sometimes delivered Israel from enemies, uh, who took on a cloak of leadership for a season and served the purposes that God had for them to serve. And the last judge was Samuel, a prophet of God and the judge of Israel, the one to whom they looked for, toward for leadership. And when they fell on hard times, he's the one they talked to, to talk to God on their behalf or to share from God's heart. Samuel's own story is interesting, even from when he was a child and heard the voice of God telling him that he would be raised up as the next leader of Israel, the next man of God. Well, Samuel, one day the people came to him and they said, we want a king like everyone else. 1 Samuel 8, 6, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel. He didn't feel at ease about it. And so he came to the Lord and prayed to God, why do I not feel good about this? And the Lord revealed to him that it was not Samuel they were rejecting, but God himself. They didn't want God as king. They wanted a regular king as king so that they could be like all the other peoples of the nation. How uh, We can identify with that. So often, we don't want God's ways. We want what everyone else is doing. Because everyone else is doing it. And Samuel, at the end of his life, the people gathered together, and this is like his farewell address. He knows he doesn't have much time left in his life. And he says, now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. And he said this, he said, if you'll fear the Lord and serve and obey him and don't rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, well, good. But if not, then God's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors when they turned against God. I found this so interesting because it reminds us the kind of God that we serve and how even our sin, even our past decisions that weren't right and weren't according to His will, God can take those and is perfectly willing to take those and use them for, for good. 
if you'll just start following him now. So many times we can look back in our life and we'll see things that we've done that we've ruined, that we did wrong, that we regret. And it's easy to get caught up in the consequences of those regrets. Sometimes those decisions we made in the past hurt somebody or hurt us. And sometimes they have far-reaching consequences into our future that really make our lives difficult. But even so, if we strive to follow God, we can look and see how He takes even those things that were born of sin and turn them to something good. Something He can use for good, for His purposes, and for the good of you and the people around you. This is the nature of our God. But Samuel wanted to impress upon the people what they had done. He wanted them to wake up and smell the coffee. So he called down thunder and rain. I'm guessing that the Farmer's Almanac that year had said, no rain, no storms. And at least it was a time of year when rain and storms were rare. Not expected, not on the forecast for that day. Everything looked clear, blue skies. And Samuel said, I'm going to call down thunder and rain so you'll understand what you've done in sinning against God by asking for a king instead of serving the Lord as your king. And so the thunder and rain comes. And that's when James Taylor wrote his song, Fire and Rain. And the people saw it, and they said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. So they were confronted with the fact that, oh yeah, God's still there. Whoops. <laughs> the God of our ancestors that moved the sea apart, that came down in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that sent plagues against the Egyptians that brought the walls of Jericho down that God is still alive and well and we have sinned against him and they trembled in fear now this moment served as a wake up call a reality check for them but it wasn't the thing that Samuel or the Lord wanted them to take forward into their faith. Because the very next thing that Samuel says when the people cry out in realization of what they've done is, do not be afraid. Fear not. Yes, this was your wake-up call, but don't go forward in fear. You have done all this evil Yet, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I ran across this as I was reading through the Bible a few years back. And I ran across this verse and it astounded me because I couldn't believe it was in the Old Testament. Because it's such a New Testament idea. In the Old Testament, typically when you sin, the response is go and offer sacrifices to be made right. But here in 1 Samuel, we have an example of the very thing that John the Baptist and Jesus and his apostles began to teach when they announced the coming of the kingdom of the heavens. 
Do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples called that repenting. Turning away from your old way of life to walk in a new way. And here in 1 Samuel, we are told what to do when we realize we've sinned. When we realize that we have violated God and His ways. We don't wallow in guilt and fear. Because that leads to problems. We have lots of unhealthy Christians and unhealthy non-Christians today because they see Christianity as a thing of fear. They see it, uh, the becoming a Christian, as a transaction born out of fear. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell, so I'm going to pray this prayer in hopes that I can get out and go to heaven instead. And they live their life rooted in this fear. And so you'll have Christians oftentimes who are going around wondering how much sin is too much sin. What will put me over the edge? If I do this, can I still go to heaven? Is this okay, pastor? Or is that too far? You have people who are so concerned with what we think about things like homosexuality in our, in our greater world. Do we say it's a sin or not? They want to know. Christians want to know what teachers think about homosexuality. Is it a sin or not? We're all wrapped up in it because our, our faith is fear-based and they want to know, are you condemning people to hell or not? When the heart of Scripture is that, yeah, you've sinned, but fear not. You've done all this evil, but just turn to the Lord and serve Him instead. Don't live your faith life out of fear. It's no way to live. It's no, no one has successfully charted the waters to a healthy heart and become a, a healthy person by living in fear. It might lead to some sort of self-pity or low self-esteem. Uh, it sometimes even takes the shape of self-righteousness towards others. But fear has never produced a healthy Christian. That moment where you realize what you've done can serve an important purpose and call us to the reality that there is a God in heaven who is holy. And that we in our sin are not holy. But that fear, though it can awaken you, cannot be the thing that drives your faith forward. Cannot be the thing that serves to set you free to live the life that God is calling you to live. No one who lived under fear ever said that they felt free. And yet the Christian life explicitly from Jesus and his apostles is a life of freedom. And so we know that that includes freedom from fear. And we know time and again they taught us that perfect love casts out fear. And that God is love. And that the command that Jesus would have us to walk in is to love one another as he has loved us. And so we know that fear has no place in the Christian life. 
This is our takeaway today. As we look at what God is telling us not to fear, He says, Fear not for your past sins. Your repentance means a fresh start. And that's incredible. Maybe instead of living out of fear, we should live out of the forgiveness that God offers. Unlike any other God. And walk forward in freedom. Let me ask you a couple questions. The first one is this. Have you ever received a reality check? A wake-up call? Something that stoked some fear in your heart? Oh yeah, there's more to life than just stuff. Oh yeah, I'm a mortal being. There is a holy God, and I'm unholy. Have you ever had a moment in your life where God gave you a wake-up call? Maybe it was a moment where you kind of saw your life flash before your eyes. Or you realized that that could have been the end of you. And it served as a wake-up call that, oh yeah, I'm not here forever. Or maybe it was a loved one that went through something difficult. Or the passing of a loved one that was a godly person and it called you to remember the way you're living your life compared to the way they lived their lives for the Lord. Our wake-up calls in all, come in all different shapes and sizes. But we don't get unlimited wake-up calls. It's not every day that Samuel calls down fire and rain. So I'd ask you, have you ever received a reality check? in your life and do you need to be reawakened do you need to reflect on that again and let that reawaken you to the reality that there is a God in heaven that it does matter what you do with your life and how you live it here it does matter whether you follow Jesus and the faith that was given to you this gift of a child that's been offered to you. A child who grew up to be a king and wants to be and deserves to be your king and my king. This matters. So I want you to reflect today on your wake-up call. But I also want to say, fear not. Allow that moment or that experience or that realization to awaken you but don't allow it to be the thing that drives your faith forward. People aren't delivered out of sin by fear. They're delivered out of sin by love. By the Holy Spirit. By a God who forgives and gives second chances. Who says... Don't sit there worrying about what you did yesterday or the decisions you made that you regret. Don't fear those. 
Don't even worry about the consequences of those, though you may have to still live with some of those things. Don't be bound by that fear, but instead, serve the Lord. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about tomorrow. Who are you going to serve then? What are you going to do with your life then? It's as though he's saying, don't fear. Yeah, you messed up. Own it, and let's move forward. I want you to think about uh, just other experiences that we have in life that I feel like kind of help us understand how this works. Uh, imagine that you wanted to learn how to shoot a gun, maybe a pistol. All right, so you wanted to become a marksman, but you'd never held a pistol before in your life. And a friend takes you out to the range, and the first thing you do is point the gun straight at somebody, and they freak out, and you freak out, and you drop the gun, and the bullet goes ricocheting all over the place as it fired when it hit the ground, and then you're scared to death. Now imagine if you just live in that fear and you never pick up the gun again. I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> it's a pretty rough first day at the shooting range. But one thing's for sure, you'll never learn to shoot that gun. If you don't put that fear behind you and pick it up again and point it down the range this time and shoot. And probably your first shot's going to miss by a mile. But you're going to try again, and you're going to aim better, and you're going to get better. And you've got to keep going. It's a little bit like that in our faith. When we realize we've been pointing the gun at somebody and we are suddenly afraid, well, if we let the fear cripple us so that we never move forward, we'll never become or take hold of what God has for us. Similarly, uh, let's say, let's take another example like boxing. You decide you want to be a boxer. And the first time you get in the ring, uh, you get your bell rung, right? And you're just like, I'm done. Well, you'll never become a boxer. Unless you overcome that fear and move forward and learn. In the old Western movies, you've got the cowboys that are breaking the horses, right? And they get on there and, you know, inevitably the horse is bucking them off, you know, and they have to keep getting on. Well, if the first time the horse throws you, you never get back on, you're never going to learn to tame a horse. All these things serve as examples of how this works in our faith, where there can be an awakening, a healthy fear that sparks a realization of the reality of what it is that we're doing. But that thing, that fear, can't be held on to or it'll cripple you so that you can't Learn to do whatever it is you're wanting to do. Uh, so, a marksman must have a healthy fear and respect of the gun and understand the realities of the situation. But if they allow the fear to cripple and dominate them, they'll never learn to shoot. If the boxer, uh, he's got to understand what can happen if they get their clock cleaned and the consequences of that. But if they allow fear of their opponent or fear of getting knocked down, to cripple and dominate their boxing, then they'll never win a match. And if a cowboy, a cowboy needs to understand the dangers of climbing on the back of a wild animal, and there's probably no better way than to get thrown off of one. I'm guessing. I don't plan to do that. I'm not even interested in taming horses. <laughs> but if I was intent on taming horses, I would have to overcome that fear, or I'd never tame anything. 
And a human being needs to understand the seriousness of sin and the realities of a holy God. But a self-absorbed, crippling sort of fear of hellfire and consequences, or even a, just a self-pitying, low self-esteem, guilt-ridden existence, will ruin a person's ability to ever develop a life of true faith in God. Does this make sense? We understand how this works in other ways of our lives. But sometimes in our faith, we just take a pass on common sense. I want you to think about this today. How has your Christian faith been operating? Is it operating primarily out of fear or out of forgiveness? Forgiveness is another thing I feel like has been a little bit ruined by hellfire and brimstone preaching. Because forgiveness for many Christians has just become a thing that gets you out of hell and gets you into heaven. And forgiveness is meant to be this thing that sets you free. Sets you free from your fear to live a different way now. Imagine if God said, your sin is so terrible but I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to leave you in it. That wouldn't make any sense. God's forgiveness is there to set you free from fear so that you can have another go at it. So that you can be free each time to sincerely pick yourself up by the help of the Holy Spirit, head out again and serve the Lord today. Yesterday, I messed up, but by the grace of God, I'm going to try again today. I read this in a uh, C.S. Lewis book just this last week. He was talking about how sometimes there's certain sins, and like he gave the example of sexual sin in our culture, can feel so impossible to overcome for some folks. I mean, it's everywhere in your face in our society. <clears throat> And C.S. Lewis said, you know, some people just throw up their hands and say, well, it's impossible, so why even try? And he compared that to a student who's taking a difficult subject in school, and they say, it's impossible, so why even try? So they don't even answer any of the questions on the test. What's the point? He said, one thing's for sure, if you never even take the test, you'll get a zero. <laughs> You won't get any credit. But if you try, you might get some credit. And it's kind of like that sometimes, I feel like, with our faith. Uh, get up and try. Try to live God's ways. Try to follow Jesus. Intend to follow Jesus. Get up and start fresh every day, not half-heartedly, sincerely. I'm going to serve the Lord today. And some days you may come up short of what you were shooting for. Okay? Forgiveness means 
you have the freedom to start fresh the next day, to put back on the armor and get back in the battle, as we talked about last week. Every day is a new day. It's a new fight. And if you keep fighting those battles, one day you might hit that target down the gun range. One day you may knock them out instead of them knocking you out in the boxing ring. One day you may tame that horse instead of him bucking you off. One day you may find that you've found victory over a sin in your life that you never thought you'd be free from. And God's forgiveness enables you to operate every day in freedom and hope instead of in fear and guilt. That's what Jesus purchased with his blood at high price. His precious blood bought you the chance to wake up this morning and start fresh with him. It bought you the chance to not live your life constantly looking over your shoulder, scared of hellfire raining down on you, but to say, thanks to the grace of God, I get to try again today. Lord, help me. I'm trying to serve you. A genuinely repentant heart God has never frowned on. If you're today crippled or confronted by your sin, know that. Know that forgiveness was purchased at high price for you. Not by the blood of animal sacrifices that were the method in Samuel's day. But by the precious blood of Jesus. And today is a chance at a fresh start for you. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the hundredth time. But come to the Lord and repent. Do not let the reality checks that come your way go to waste. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for fresh starts and second chances. Sometimes, God, it's easy for us to operate out of fear instead of forgiveness. Holy Spirit, make us faithful as we start again. Grant us the courage to overcome our fears and to follow Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.